Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I'm overall okay, but there's just a lot of stuff going on in our world. I feel you, man. A lot of heaviness, yeah. Yeah, I feel you. Like, all things considered, I'm doing better than most, but like you said, there's there's a lot going on in this world, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't want, I, I wouldn't know where to begin uh, to address it. Uh, except for doing this work that we're doing and uh, making an effort to find peace and find hope and find a way forward through the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, with you today, Derek. So what do you say we jump into it and have some of these conversations? Yeah, let's let's go for it. All right. Before we do that, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Now a part of Lyceum. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay. So we are this week discussing in the Come Follow Me Mosiah chapters 18 through 24 and there's quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of doctrine in these chapters and quite a bit in here that's relevant to all kinds of situations that we're dealing with today or that we've dealt with in history. Uh, where would you like to start Derek? Would you is there any context you want to give to these chapters before we like really dive into the doctrine? The only context is to just remind people where we left off that Alma fled into the wilderness. Uh, for his own safety and because he was unwelcome among King Noah's people and priests. There's a lot of in, up in the air. One of the questions that I'm very curious about is, did Alma and his people out in the waters of Mormon have copies of the scriptures? Mm, that's a good question. And it doesn't say either way. I imagine that they, they may not have had... It's not like today where you have a printing press and everyone has their own scriptures or their, you know... There may be like one official copy per congregation or that I don't know even what they had, mm. whether they had any scriptures. And it's all the more impressive if Alma went out there and taught people because you've got extensive teaching uh, of the people and bringing them to repentance. And did they do that without the scriptures? And if they did, that meant they knew the scriptures so well. Mm. And it meant that they lived their life in a way that the, their lives became in a sense, testimonies of the scriptures. Like the com- the way they lived the commandments is how they taught each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's really beautiful to think of when there's times of deprivation or constraint, like really tapping into being a community that lives, the- lives out these things, and that's how you pass it on to others. Mm. I imagine that's maybe what they did if they didn't have any scriptures. Well, we do know that they at least had the words of Abinadi. I mean, not exactly a lot to go on, um, but nonetheless, there was a lot of important words and important doctrine that was, you know, in Abinadi's speech to, you know, King Noah's court. So, like, right. yeah. I mean, at worst, that's what they had to work with, but even still, I really like what you said about how the community operated even without the tools that perhaps King Noah or other actual organized churches in that time had immediate practical implications for these people. And it also has profound implications for how the, uh, how the saints today, how the saints then treat folks on the margins. I I think often Derek about why there aren't more black folks in the church or how we can better our missionary efforts among communities of color. 
I, I wonder how often do we think about how to mourn with and comfort communities that deal with unique struggles. For example, uh, my friend Felicia related a story of being in a predominantly black congregation the same week that Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were shot and killed. The congregation was in mourning. The, uh, there was a bishopric member conducting the service and he stated that the bishop desired to speak to the congregation before the conclusion of the meeting, which was met with an audible gasp. And you could tell people were waiting with bated breath for the bishop to say, to say something, anything, to ease the pain of the black members of that congregation. So he got up and he proceeded to tell the congregation about an experience his family had on a trip to Idaho. Another example, Trayvon Martin's death was a flashpoint in American race relations because it was the first time in recent memory that America was confronted with racism in such a way that it could not be ignored by populations who would ordinarily do so via social media. Since then, there have been many more high-profile deaths of unarmed black men at the hands of police or white vigilantes, and black folk would always grieve. And it really broke my heart to see my people grieving only to then see white folk, especially the saints, interrupt that morning with questions, opinions, and other kinds of hurtful rhetoric, I would see black folks say, black lives matter to a response of all lives matter statements. I would see statements of grief responded to with affirmations of the great work of our law enforcement officials generally do. I would see anger at the questionable circumstances of death responded to with demands for an explanation of that anger and so on. Uh, again, by th this is all by the saints of God. How is this mourning with those who mourn if we're not even giving them space to grieve? How is this comforting those who stand in need of comfort if we're not validating their sadness and anger? How is this easing one another's burdens that they may be light if on top of their sadness we make demands of them to explain their sadness and their anger? Are these actions not opposite of the covenant we see in these verses in Mosiah 18? What, what does honoring this covenant look like then in this context it this it looks like checking in on your black friends when there's another high profile killing under questionable circumstances it looks like showing up to vigils in your neighborhood when they're held it looks like being comfortable enough with our church's history to acknowledge that racism was likely a part of the priesthood and temple restrictions it looks like respecting black pain enough to acknowledge it without criticizing it if we can do this as a faith community, we can be significantly better ministers to the black community. We can turn our churches into a space that black folk don't just find comfort in, but thrive in. We can lead the world in a transformation that prevents any more Ahmad Arbery's, and we can stand boldly as witnesses of Christ anywhere and any time that black lives do matter. Yeah, I just want to lift up what you said and affirm it. That really needs to be heard. And I just give my second witness to everything you just said. And it reminds me of how Alma's people were literally mourning the death of Abinadi. Yep. They were a community that was traumatized. And it, this wasn't just some random act of death. This was death by what we would consider today the law enforcement. Mm -hmm. This was a lynching it in was a way. A, yeah, it was, a, um, it was a lynching. It was a martyrdom, but it was also a lynching that threatened an entire community. It wasn't just, oh, this one person got killed. This is designed to terrorize and 
dissuade other people from following Abinadi. Mm-hmm. So Alma and his people had to go into the wilderness to be to be safe. And so literally we have a marg- literally a geographically marginalized community but also marginalized in terms of power and access and authority. Right. And I just want to lift that up that we can see Alma's people at the waters of Mormon we can see them as an exiled people because they were not welcome in the institutional church. Their needs were not being met. They were not safe. So they right. were prompted to do their own thing on their own terms. And that really has nothing to do with whether the leadership was apostate or not because I think the primary thing is they their needs were not met and they were prompted by the Spirit to do this. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the heart of what led Alma to frame this covenant in such a practical way. And I just love the fact it's almost ironic that our model, that the pattern and prototype of the Nephite church is a marginalized community, not an institutional community. Yeah. And this is today, to this very day, you know, centuries later, we use this text as the heart of our baptismal understanding, the text that came from a marginalized community. That is who we should be as a church. Mm. We should be on the margins. And that's the whole point of this covenant is getting out there with the people who are having burdens or mourning or needing Mm -hmm. comfort. We need to be a marginalized, to be with and among and for the marginalized. Mm -hmm. I think that's the the way God acts throughout history. And I want to connect this a little bit with activism because people wonder, well, like, why aren't, why aren't, Latter-day Saints at the front of every civil rights movement, we really should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there's no excuse for why we're not. Um, but every generation, there's going to be some uh, multiple issues, intersectional issues that call for a moral witness. Mm-hmm. And we need to be activists. Now, probably some people out there are going to say, well, Derek isn't a very good activist. And in, in many ways, I'm not. But Mosiah 18 here teaches the principles of activism. So we have here both the fuel and the permission for activism. Like, Mm -hmm. we should never doubt that Latter-day Saints have the ability and the obligation to engage in activism. And here we have both the what and the how of activism. The what of our activism, the principle we're trying to implement is really simple. All are alike unto God from 2 Nephi 26, 33. That is what we are implementing. All are alike unto God. Mm -hmm. And the how of our activism is here in this text... This is our method. It's our covenant, covenantally obligated divestment of privilege. We are taking some of the weight off, the effort off of others and onto ourselves. This consists of bearing one another's burdens that they may be light, mourning with those that mourn, comforting those that stand in need of comfort, and standing as moral witnesses of God in all things. Mm-hmm. That means every time there's a current event, there's an opportunity to... That's, that's what it means by saying all things. We have an obligation to stand as what would God say to this and where is God in this? Right. And almost every piece of activism can be seen as in harmony with these elements of our covenant. Like everything I do for Black Lives Matter or for women or for any any group is here right in here in this covenant. I should not have to defend um, activism, although a lot of Latter-day Saints are scared of activism. Which baffles my mind because like a lot of people will fall back on the church saying it's apolitical and I'm just like, but like this is literally in our baptismal covenant. All times, all things, all places. Like why do we treat the church like it's a social, cultural, and political vacuum when 
we are literally told to be a witness of God everywhere and all the time. Like that just does not make any sense to me. Yeah, and I think it's it, this was ex- exceptionally true in the 19th century for for a lot of the history of the church, uh, religious freedom and the ability to to have religious liberty that was something that Joseph Smith was a civil rights activist about. Mm-hmm. Same thing with uh, the suffrage movement, the early suffrage movement. We had our Latter Day Saint women be leaders in that, and I think there's totally room for that. I yeah. we just need to tap into that and not wait for permission from from some other authority. Do you feel like you there's know, any particular um, reason that we've kind of moved away from that? Or can the case be made that we haven't moved away from that th- and we just do it when it's convenient for us? I think it's more cultural than doctrinal because we've got this idea with correlation with the centralizing of authority that... Our leaders are going to pamper us and give us everything we need, which is really the opposite of Mm self-reliance to talk about some hypocrisy there. But we expect them to give us all the manuals, them to give us everything we need. We don't have to do any work. We don't have to do any original thought. There's this, I don't know, which is not in our doctrine. I can't think of anything in the scriptures that justifies that. Obviously, we sustain our leaders, but in in a time of milk before meat, Meat, milk is something that's given to you because you're a baby and you can't get it for yourself. Meat is something that when you're grown, you go out and, go out and get it yourself. Mm. And I think that's why people are expecting the leaders to give us the meat too. I mean, and that's not their job. There's there's a lot of becoming a celestial adult, learning initiative and responsibility that's on us. That if we don't do it, we don't become the type of person that can inherit a celestial glory. Right. So it can't be outsourced. It has to be internal. Right. But culturally, we have said, oh, the leaders are going to take care of anything. And I think a lot of people, and this is totally social and cultural, we just defer all these things and we can't, we feel like we can't make a statement unless the newsroom makes a statement and then we can share it. Right. And, and we've never had to wait for that. I mean... That's what are your thoughts on that? I don't know, man. Just I heard this quote like sometime in the sometime early in the week about how when the prophet speaks, the thinking has been done. And I just wanted to like I don't I don't remember where I saw it, but I I'm pretty sure it was on my computer and I just wanted to punch my screen. I was like, people, like this really undermines the whole purpose of walking the covenant path, of becoming godlike, just if we don't get an opportunity to really exercise our God-given ability to think, to gain knowledge, and to really wrestle with our doctrine, with our texts, with our own faiths, then how are we becoming more celestial? Just how are we doing that at all if we just let the prophet do all the thinking for us, especially when the prophet clearly hasn't thought of everything? Like, they can't. That's not even their calling. Like, as you said, this is not a doctrinally based idea, what we've tended to adopt in our culture. And um, yeah, I don't know, man, just it's, it's, it's a frustrating thing to me to watch. And I just really wish that in that particular context, people, people would take a little bit more initiative like Nephi did when he had to build a boat and build a bow and arrow, despite not knowing anything about how to do either just, we, we, I just wish we take more initiative, right? And, and I, just a quick detour. This statement that that when the leader, when the prophet speaks, the thinking is done. That came out in in the improvement area in 1945, and 
someone somehow that slipped into the material and then the president of the church officially disavowed it george albert smith said like this is not who we are we have agency we do not force people to do anything we teach correct principles and they govern themselves that is not who we are and i think that response is very consistent with the church up until the 1940s but then here we've just got this cultural thing in the church since correlation and since all of uh the growth of the church and how everything has been centralized that we've lost that and and this idea has come back and like that jesus is never yeah i just oh i'm so frustrated i can't even put it into words <laughs> um at how narrow-minded it's it's like we're selling where our birthright like yeah i mean we have the right to personal revelation to exploration to studying and growing and learning we're and we're selling that birthright for something far inferior yeah but definitely. let me just name this morning with those who mourn i think we've talked about this before many months ago but many listeners may not have heard this but it's this idea of ring theory it's Morning with those who mourn, we can do that best with this idea of concentric rings and that the that the person who is experiencing the crisis is in the center and those there are some uh, then the people that are immediately close to them are right in the next ring and then you keep going outward. And what we have to do is comfort in and dump out. So if there's someone that's in a closer ring than we are, we're supposed to be present with them. We don't dump on them. We be present with them. And then when we need to process our own needs, we do it with someone further out in the ring. Mm. And this gets back to uh, the calls we've seen online and for uh, for justice for Ahmad. That, d- that doesn't mean that we lock up as murderers and keep going. It means that we have a complete cultural, moral, and judicial overhaul of the systems that allowed that to happen in the first place and continue to allow it to happen so that we can demonstrate that Black Lives Matter on every level. And I think it's important to name that our culture and our institutions absolutely prioritizes white life over black life. And it needs to be named because some people won't even admit that. Mm. Just imagine what would happen if the colors were reversed here in Georgia. You know, two black dudes with guns chase a white boy jogging and kill him. Those two black killers would either be dead or in jail immediately. There's no doubt about it. No doubt. Like, absolutely. No doubt. you don't even have to use your imagination to realize that that's true. And that's, that's just sickening that we have that, that for our culture and for our, our system, black lives don't matter and, and they should, which is leads me to, to name that we are at a true Alma moment at this time where we must call the entire society to repentance, which is exactly what Abinadi did exactly what Alma did, even though they got pushback for it. So part of this Alma moment is to name mm-hmm. that the violence done in my name as a white person is done allegedly to protect me, to make the world safer for whiteness, and to maintain a dominant place for me as a white person. And that's hard for me to name because I don't, I don't mean I don't want to feel bad, but the, what I need to do is name that this isn't done just because someone didn't like something. 
this is done essentially to protect me as a white person, to protect my mm-hmm. whiteness. I'm like, I need to name that so that we can get, get to this, get to the bottom of this. So here we have yeah. a black man was lynched right. for my benefit, my personal benefit, and, and that needs to be named. This is a great evil done in my name and on my behalf. And we have to name this reality so that we see the unspoken assumptions that are behind this. We can't fix the system unless we know what's propping up the system. Right, right. And that's why we as white people need to face being uncomfortable. We are at a decision moment in our history where we can only comfort those who stand in need of comfort by discomforting those who stand in need of discomfort. Now, I'm going to get in trouble for Mm. saying that. But there's some people that stand in need of discomfort. And I, as a white person, I'm one of them. Right? And here's what's discomforting is that, like I said, this excused killing of black people is done allegedly for the benefit of white folks. I mean, I love what Ida Wells did. She spoke powerfully against this lie already in the 1890s. She exposed the falsehood that the majority of lynching victims were criminals who deserved what they got. But what's sad is we've been having this conversation for over a century and we need to get it right. Mm. If not now, when? That is the question. That is the question. And that kind of brings me to uh, the next thing I wanted to discuss in the face of times like this. We, We also learn a little bit more about the consequences and the responses to oppression in the following in the following chapters. Uh, I don't want to spend all that much time on this, but starting in about chapter 20, verse 15, we see one of the effects of being quick to anger. Now, just as a brief uh, overview, what's happening here is the Lamanites are attacking the Nephites because about uh, 24 of the Lamanite daughters were abducted by the priests of Noah. The, The king of the Lamanites blamed the people of Limhi and went after them. The people of Limhi are able to repulse them, but they find the king among their dead They bind him up, deliver him up to Limhi, presumably to be slain. But Limhi asks why he broke their oath and attacked them. They had an oath between the Nephites and the Lamanites, basically like we are not going to interfere with each other. Uh, You know, y'all pay your tributes and we'll leave y'all alone. Y'all can have this land. Uh, But then the king of the Lamanites then explains in verse 15 that he attacked them because he thought they took away the daughters of his people and he reacted in anger. At the beginning of the next chapter, we see the Lamanites get angry again. And, you know, this is just a couple of days later. And they basically decide to be petty and come against the Nephites. And they don't kill them, but they still physically abuse them because they could. And then the Nephites try to defend themselves once, but are repulsed by the Lamanites with a great loss. And then the Nephites themselves are stirred up to anger and decide to try again. But they suffer the same fate and even try a third time with the same result. So in this short little window of verses, we see that people can be driven to make some foolish choices out of anger that result in costly consequences. Now in saying that, I do want to say that there is such a thing as righteous indignation. There is such a thing as righteous anger. The king of the Lamanites was right to be mad about the loss of the Lamanite daughters, but he directed that anger at the wrong people. The Nephites were right to be mad about the Lamanite oppression, and perhaps they were even right in taking up arms the first time. But taking on the Lamanites the second and third times out of anger after they already lost a battle and their numbers were significantly reduced was probably not the most sound strategy for addressing their oppression. 
in uh, in civil rights movements, it's okay to be angry. I mean, it's you have a right to be actually when when privileges and rights are denied because of who you are, what you look like or who you love. What's not okay is directing that anger in the wrong way at the wrong time or at the wrong people. And, you know, there's several uh, modern uh, examples of this, but I think one of the most visible that we can point to is actually in the Marvel Cinematic Universe from my favorite villain, Killmonger, in Black Panther. Um, And I don't think that there's any villain in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that makes more sense than he does. Like, his anger is justified. He lost both of his parents, one to the American prison system, the other to his own uncle. He knew that with Wakanda's resources, they could aid black folks all over the world and even uh, liberate them. But the king of Wakanda himself stopped his father from doing just that. And some of his desires were actually righteous. He wanted he wanted black liberation, but that wasn't all or even the primary thing he wanted or that motivated him. He didn't just want liberation. He wanted Wakanda hegemony and he wanted revenge. And his plan to get it was pretty terrible. Like, in fact, if you remember uh, George W. Bush's era, like that era policy for quote unquote democracy promotion, that's basically what Killmonger's plan was. That plan backfired spectacularly with unforeseen consequences every time it was deployed. But anyway, the point is, I feel like we're being told to take care of how we act when we're angry in these verses. It's a great weapon when wielded properly, anger is. But it's also a really easy weapon to wield improperly, and we can't afford that in the struggle for civil rights and all things. Our cause can get away from us, and precious time and lives can be lost as was the case with the Nephites. The Nephites lost many lives because of decisions they made in anger before they humbled themselves and subjected themselves to the Lamanites for the sake of their lives. Like even though they had to be su- even though they had to subject themselves to bondage and humiliation in order to do it, they had to break the cycle. They had to end the violence to, to preserve their lives and plan their next move. They had to be strategic. This is the primary difference between movements like uh uh, Black Lives Matter and other black separatist movements that we regularly uh, see ourselves confused with or see conflated like the damage that they do to the movement is such that they end up being categorized as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. We don't we don't need that nonsense. We have to be strategic, especially in our anger. That doesn't mean we hide it. That doesn't mean we conceal it, but we, but rather that we channel it in a similar way to what the Nephites did throughout chapter 22, which is, you know, also profound. You know, we see in chapter 22 that they get the voice of the people in the in the very first verse. And then, you know, when we apply that to our different groups, the work of organizing needs to take place first, but the next step is to get on the same page and to act. And then you see what the Nephites determined, which is also profound. You know, they, uh, Gideon comes up with a great idea to, to, you know, get themselves out of that situation they were in. They, they couldn't fight the Lamanites to deliver themselves. You know, they just didn't have the numbers to do that. There was too many of them. What they ended up doing though, was exploiting a weakness in their system to escape bondage. And, you know, we can definitely see in history how, you know, different groups of people have done this. One of the greatest strengths to black liberation movements has been how often uh, white folks or anybody who espouses white supremacy has underestimated the intelligence of people they thought they were better than. And that ended up working to white supremacy's detriment and working to the advantage of black liberation movements. The civil rights movement behind um, Martin Luther King 
the movements of the Black Panthers, uh, the Nation of Islam, you know, pre, pre-Malcolm, I guess. Uh, there, there's just all kinds of things we can get out of this example. But, you know, there, there was a lot in there. But primary takeaways were to be careful of how we who work for civil rights, how we respond uh, when we're angry, and also to be strategic when it comes to our liberation movements. Yeah, that, that that's a lot of good points. I just want to name that anger is a symptom that your values are being violated. Oh, yeah. And so anger by itself, I mean, is really neither good nor bad. It just is. And I think right. it's what you do with that anger that's important. And in fact, we've got examples of the Lord being angry uh, in, in the Bible. We've got yep. examples of Jesus becoming angry. We have even Paul getting angry in his epistle to the Galatians. Like anger is what it is. Right. It's a. It's like on what values or principles is your anger based? Is it based in the protection of those with less power? Or is it based in the protection of your own power? If you get angry because your privilege is getting reduced, then, then, that's, not, then that's not helpful. But right. if you're angry for the right reasons, and there's things that, that we should be angry about. Otherwise, yeah. you know, there's something wrong with us. If you look at what's going on, with black folks in this country and you're not angry, there's there's something wrong. Right. Um, we should have our emotions fully engaged here. But then what do we do about it? See, that's the question. Now, I don't, I don't know all the answers, right? Mm-hmm. But I will want to name that here we have examples in the Book of Mormon of a nonviolent tactic here of sneaking out in the middle of the night when, you're, when your oppressors are drunk or, or sleeping. And that's one option. And this mm-hmm. seems to be successful, at least in the short term. Whereas violent solutions, in sometimes they're not successful in the short term, but I think they're never successful in the long term because you just perpetuate a cycle of revenge and retaliation. Right, right. So there's something I kind of want to dabble in real quick. I haven't fleshed this all the way out, just kind of thinking out loud here, but there was a curious thing that I gathered from these two stories of a people's liberation from oppression. There, I have to wonder, is there a case to be made for black separatism in here? Like there appears to be no path to proper coexistence between the Nephites and the Lamanites. So the Lord leads them out, leads the Nephites out and into a land of Zarah- into the land of Zarahemla where they can exist in peace, free of Lamanite oppression in a land that they're actually welcome. Only two generations have passed from the time that Zenith left uh, Zarahemla to the time uh, that the Lord led those people, the people of Alma and the people of Limhi out of bondage. We've been, America, we've been at this 16 generations and 30% of black children are living in poverty. The black maternal death rate is three times higher than average. America holds 25% of the world's prisoners despite being about 5% of the world's population and 40% of that population is black. Black men are disproportionately killed at higher rates by law enforcement at every level of society. Black Americans still suffer from massive discrimination after 400 years of this nonsense. And perhaps it's because of uh, Arbery's death and this narrative that I see here. But because of that, I feel I have to at least consider, are we going about this whole thing the right way? Is this fight for equality with a people who have yet to fully see us as human really worth it 
Like the people of Alma and Limhi wouldn't have been where they were had Zenith just stayed where he was, like in Zarahemla. And eventually all of them, all of them, the people of Alma, the people of Limhi, they were all brought back to Zarahemla anyway. So like because of that, I also have to wonder, is America where we're supposed to be right now? Is black America where we're supposed to be right now? Ultimately, because of the trajectory of the Book of Mormon and the establishment of the Christian church in the Bible and in the Book of Mormon, I know that the Lord's goal is integration. So I'm not advocating for uh, a permanent black separatism, but I am wondering if when we organize from here on out, is it better for us to fight for equality and justice in a system that was founded on denying us those things? Or is it better to create or join a society where we don't have to prove our worth? A society that is already our own world, a society where we are already welcome. Because if the Lord's response to a people's oppression was to physically remove them from it, and he has taken that tack more than once, then would the Lord do the same for us today? Would he want us to do the same today? Would he support that if we chose that? Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking out loud here. Yeah, I think part of it gets back to something needs to break the cycle of retaliation and abuse and revenge and all these things because most of what's happening here is people doing things as a reaction to what the previous generation did in the previous generation they're stuck in this in this continuum of cycle of trying to on both sides trying to solve their problems through violence and the right. and the main message of the book of mormon is that that doesn't work yes there's a lot of war in the book of mormon but war never brings lasting pre- peace to the people what really brings lasting people peace to the people is of course the coming of Christ and that you had something that could unite people something that was bigger and more important than their differences right in the time of fourth Nephi there were no ites you had everyone peacefully coexisting because what united them was greater than what divided them mm-hmm. I'm w- wondering now it would this have been available centuries a few centuries earlier and my my idea would be well maybe yes because mm-hmm. Alma and Abinadi, they knew Christ. They, I mean, they spoke of Christ's death and resurrection and ministry as if it had already happened. I think there was some measure of peace that would have been available to them if something, if they on both sides had been open to it. Perhaps, yeah. And speaking of being open to things, I want to get back to how to implement bearing one another's burdens for LGBT people in the church today. All right. Right now... I mean, it, right now, it's not just a matter of bearing our burdens. It's a matter of, like, not adding burdens to us that don't even need to be there. Because right now, right. we have a lot of burdens placed on us that are placed on no other people in the church. We've got, mm-hmm. we have loaded onto LGBT folks an artificial and arbitrary burden that doesn't need to be there, that no one else has to bear. What we need to do instead is create a moral soil for LGBTQ people to grow and flourish in the church, the same as our straight and cisgender siblings. Mm. That is what we need to do. And yes, it's going to end up bearing one another bur- another's burdens. Straight people and cisgender people are going to have to take on some things that will make them a little bit uncomfortable. Right. And here's where I want to get go with this. is Part of bearing one another's burdens in the church would be for every soul in this church, leadership, membership, everyone, to admit that we as a people could be mistaken on this issue. 
which is a burden, right? I mean, it is it is a little bit of a ding to your to your ego and and to your comfort and to the status quo. But I'm asking people to take on that burden and to pray with real intent for further light and knowledge. Now, let's talk about this word real intent. Most people have talked about this at some form or another, usually with Moroni chapter 10. Real intent means truly being willing to act on the answer that you receive from God, no matter what it is. If you're surprised by it, if you're, uh, you know, horrified by it, if, if it's contrary to everything you know, real intent means going with what God says. If you're not willing to, to come to the Lord with real intent, you're not going to get a real answer from God because you're not going to act on it anyway. And so here's my my real thing. I do believe that, I, and I know that our leadership is inspired but at this point, I have no evidence that we as a people have prayed with real, real intent on this matter. You know, it's what we ask of every investigator in the church. Why should it be wrong to ask this of our members and leaders? Right. And here's why I don't think we've really prayed with real intent on this. I don't think that our leaders sincerely think that they could be wrong. And I get it. I mean, if I were in their position, I would be absolutely confident that I was right. Um, our leaders are mostly operating on inertia and assumption and inherited biases. Um, they grew up in a world where there were no gay people uh, publicly, right? Mm -hmm. And I can't even imagine them being open to marriage equality. You know, I just don't think they're in a position where they sincerely think that that's even a possibility. And if that's the case, they have not asked the Lord with real intent. I can't imagine, I'm not going to name any particular authorities, but I, there's some of them that I can imagine that they have never had the insight to say, you know what, maybe we're wrong about this. Maybe we've been wrong all these years. Um, let's give the LGBTs a fair chance and actually bring this to the Lord and say, we don't know, it could go either way. Let's bring this to the Lord, being fully willing to have same gender ceilings to, in the temple tomorrow if that's what the Lord demands. I don't think our leadership is there. I don't think that they've gone to the Lord and said, you know what? We're ready to have same gender ceilings. We just need to ask the Lord. That's real intent, okay? Mm -hmm. No, I, I really think this is just so out of bounds for them and so unthinkable for them that they've ruled out the possibility long before even coming to the Lord with this. And because they have not come to the Lord with the cautious humility of real intent, they don't have the answers. Mm. Um, or at least I should say that our leaders have not publicly framed it as real intent, giving us, the people, the impression that they would be on board with ending discrimination against LGBTs in the church tomorrow if the Lord tells them to do so. Like when you, when you listen to certain people in their conference talks, they haven't even considered the possibility that they could be wrong. Right. And I, yes, it is something that needs to be done. It is the absolute best way to bear the burdens of LGBTQ people. And I just love this one verse in Acts 15, verse 10. This is in the con controversy over, um, I usually say that it's the controversy over the inclusion of the Gentiles, but the inclusion of the Gentiles was never in dispute. It was on what terms are they going to be included? On what terms? Circumcision, obeying the law of Moses, are those required or not? Because anyone could have joined the Jesus movement at any time, 
by converting to Judaism and being a full Jew and then following Jesus. Uh, I love that, you know, the, the epistle to the Galatians was also about the terms on which Gentiles would be included, and it ends with uh, the sixth chapter, and it says in Galatians 6, 2, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And the law of Christ here is probably what he taught. Love your neighbor as yourself, you know, um, mm-hmm. as as I have loved you, love one another. That's really what we're supposed to do. And this empathy for the other is at the heart of what bearing one another's burdens is like, mourning with those who mourn and comforting those who stand in need of comfort. So that's kind of where I want to leave that. I mean, it's just, it's so difficult because, oh, I didn't even quote the verse in Acts that I was talking about. Here's what it says, um, Acts 15.10. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to 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 put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. And here's the irony is what the burden that straight and cisgender folks in the church are putting on LGBTQs is something that they would not, they would not even bear that for one day themselves. Right. Like if you said, okay, there's right. going to be no straight ceilings in the church. There's going to be, you know, if you're if you're straight, you're you're evil and you need to be excommunicated. Or if you're if uh, if you're cisgender, you can't be the gender. You can't function in the church as the gender you know yourself to be. We would not tolerate that one day for straight and cisgender people. Why are we tolerating it, tolerating it for generations? and decades for our LGBTQ people. I mean, it's a similar thing to what's going on with white people and and black people in this country. If we did to white people what we did to black people, it would be fixed mm-hmm. already. Like we would not we would not still be wrestling with these issues hundreds and hundreds of years later. Agreed. All right. And I think that's a good place for us to uh, end for the time being. Uh before we wrap up and go on to the housekeeping items, just wanted to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, with which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That actually reminds me, uh, Derek, um, did your copy of Tabernacle of Clay arrive yet? No, um, it hasn't. Why are people getting these books before us? Like, Well, I, okay. didn't, I didn't order mine until uh, like two weeks ago. Okay. And I also ordered mine directly from UNC Press and not Amazon, so I have no idea if I'll get mine. Bef- I don't know. Okay. Okay. I did not order directly from UNC Press, but apparently, just for the benefit of our listeners, uh Taylor Petrie has recently I mean, the the book isn't even released yet, but there is a book called Tabernacle of Clay that he has released. The people that have received the book already really seem to be enjoying it as a you know, what seems to be a pivotal work as relates to gender and sexuality in the context of our faith. So if you haven't checked that out yet, definitely check it out. Again, the title of the book is uh, Tabernacle of Clay, 
You can find it at, or sorry, Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism. You can find it from, was it UNC Press and Amazon? Right, yes. All right, yeah, uncpress.org, you can find it, and you can also pre-order it on Amazon. I think it's slated for release sometime in June, but uh, you can pre-order it now, and apparently some people have already received their copies. So, yeah, check that out. Let us know what you think. I like, like, I'm very intrigued by the reviews of the book I've seen so far, and I'm anxious to get my hands on it myself. Yeah, me too. I haven't seen any drafts of it. I mean, I know Taylor's work in outline and from conversations and discussions with him, and um, we've even co-presented at conferences together. So I definitely have a lot of respect for him and his work, and I'm intrigued as to where this is going to go and what type of influence it will have. Yeah. As am I. Very curious. Okay, Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com and also on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Real quick, before we sign off, just a couple of quick thank yous to uh, Tamara Kemsley, who's been editing our episodes for the last little while. Also to David Doyle, who's edited the majority of our most uh, recent episodes. We really do appreciate that help, guys. And as always, thank you all for listening to the show, for sending us your feedback and sending us your love. We really do appreciate it. Again, thank you. Till we meet again next week.